All right, so um, good morning. If you if you don't know me, I'm Michael Smith. Uh, I've been at the Rivers for quite a while, but I just commented to Michelle Hankins last Sunday, how is it that I don't know 70% of the people in this room? You know, I've been here like six years, um, but it's uh, it's good to see you all. And Mitch is away with some other guys in San Francisco this this weekend, um, and so I'm sure he'll have a, a good update for us next week. But he asked me several weeks ago to come and fill in for him on this particular Sunday, and I'm eager to do that because, as many of you know, uh, the Hankins and myself and my wife are planning on um, relocating middle of next year to Portland, Oregon, to plant a church. And um, I want to take some seminary courses up there and, and uh, will hopefully eventually be preaching a lot, so any opportunity I get these days, I'm jumping at. And uh, so when Mitch called me and asked me, even though I'm eager to preach, every time he asks me that, I think, oh my gosh, what am I going to preach on? You know, there's, there's so much Bible and so little time. I have one week here. Um, and so I have stumbled backwards into a, a really appropriately themed sermon considering what we're going to be doing on Thursday. Um, I, I, I didn't make this connection before until just a couple of nights ago, but uh, we've been studying Colossians in our college group for this whole semester. And one of the things that we've been noticing throughout the book of Colossians is this thread that Paul weaves through the book. Um, over and over again, he, he brings up this, this theme of giving thanks for this or for that or living in a way that is thankful. And as we've gone through the book, these things have, have jumped up and I've mentioned to the college students over and over, Okay, he, he mentions Thanksgiving again. We don't have time to get into that right now, but we will come back and talk about how Thanksgiving relates to the Christian life um, or being thankful relates to the Christian life. And uh, so I've said that week after week. And then as I'm reading through Colossians, when Mitch says, hey, why don't you preach for me? I think, well, I'll preach from Colossians. I've been studying that. That makes sense. And then I start reading through the book and I see that thread again of Thanksgiving and I thought, Hey, this would be great. This would be a great sermon. Instead of waiting till the end of the semester with the college students and coming back and recapping all the Thanksgiving, let's just do that as a church. And then it hit me, this week is Thanksgiving. That's great. Isn't that fun how God works that out, puts all that together? So here we are with a Thanksgiving-themed sermon out of Colossians and other other passages. And so um, what I want to do today is, is for us to just pause and and look at how this theme of thanksgiving, not just in Colossians, but throughout the scriptures, how that functions in the life of a Christian. Why is it important? Why does it matter? Um, why does Paul always come back to that? Why do the Psalms continually say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever? Why, why did the psalmist make a big deal of this thanksgiving? Um, so I hope, I hope it's, it's uh, beneficial for all of us. So that's what we're going to do today. I think, let me pray, and then let's just jump in. We're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 3. So if you want to flip there, and, and let me pray for myself and for us as we hear the word here. Father, we are thankful people, I pray. I pray that we have come this morning as we've, we've sung these songs, as we've talked together, as we sit and, and have heard Brad's um, communion meditation, and as we've we've sat together corporately 
and thought about the gospel, I pray that our hearts have overflowed with thanksgiving. And if they have not, Father, I pray that you would take these next few minutes and warm our hearts, soften them by your word. May your spirit come and apply the truth of your word to our hearts that we would be people who overflow with gratitude as we understand what you have done for us in Christ. Father, do that now. I pray that you would give me wisdom to speak and um, that you would give us ears to hear. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what we'll do since Colossians kind of launched this idea, let's start in Colossians and then we'll use that. We'll, We'll kind of bounce around and do maybe a scenic tour through some parts of the Bible, uh, to look at Thanksgiving. But, but we'll home base today will be Colossians three verses 12 through 17. And, uh, let me read that and then we'll jump in. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. So let me tell you where we are in Colossians. Paul, Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church. He's never been there. He planted the church in Ephesus, and a guy named Epaphras probably heard the gospel in Ephesus, took it back home to Colossae, started that church. And then years later, Paul is in prison in Rome, and Epaphras shows up and says, hey, Paul, we got this church in, in Colossae. And some things are going on with it. Let me, let me give you an update. And so Epaphras tells him some good things. The, the church is you know, probably doing pretty well. The believers are walking faithfully in the gospel. But there's this group of folks coming in, and, and they have some kind of like hybrid Judaism that they're trying to tell the Colossian church, hey, it's good to believe in Jesus, but also do these things. And then you'll be right with God. You know, make sure you cover all your bases. And if you know anything about Paul, you can imagine how he responded to that. He said, no dice. That doesn't work. It's not Jesus and anything. It is Jesus, period. Rest in him. Trust in him. And so so Paul, as Paul does, in prison, trying to keep track of everything that's going on in all these churches, he says, well, I'll just fire off a letter. And he writes a letter to the Colossian church and to the Ephesian church and to the church at Laodicea. And he sends those letters. And um, and so in the letter, his goal is, okay, how do I help reorient these Colossians to the true gospel and, and make sure that they don't get led astray by all these competing ideas? And so he opens the letter. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he launches into this glorious description, glorious passage explaining who Jesus is, that that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, um, that he created everything, that he is he's preeminent in all things. So he lays that as the cornerstone of what he wants the Colossians to get. And then he kind of extrapolates that out for another chapter or so. And then we hit chapter three 
And, and if you've ever read Paul's letters, you see this theme in all of them. He lays a doctrinal foundation. Here, here are true statements you should believe, and here's what you should do as a result. So we hit Colossians chapter 3, and he starts laying out the practicals. Okay, put to death everything that is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Put on these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, love. He gives this big, long list of traits that these Colossian Christians should have. And then at the very end, I, I, this has struck me over and over. He just goes, list, list, list. You should be like this and like this and like this and like this. Oh, and be thankful. He just like tacks it on at the end. Almost, you might think it's an afterthought, except then the next two verses, he circles back around. So he says, you should, you should be compassionate and you should be meek and you should be humble and you should be kind and you should be loving and you should be thankful and you should sing to each other and be thankful and you should do everything in the name of Jesus and be thankful. He keeps coming back and hammering that theme. Be thankful. And, um, and I, I just, when I see that, I, I want to chew on it. When Paul hits a, a nail like that three times in a row, I think, okay, something's important here. What do we, what do we need to understand? And so I think a good way to get our head around this is to, to ask, what is he not saying? Okay. He says, you should be thankful, Colossian church. He does not say you should be polite and say thank you. Right? He says you should be thankful. He says that thanksgiving is something far deeper than doing. It is being. It is, it is a characteristic of our heart. It is a, a defining trait of Christians. In everything we should do, this should be a characteristic of those things. That we should be thankful. In fact, he says that even more ex- explicitly in verse 17. He says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in everything you do, how should you do it? You should do it with thanks. You should do it thankfully, with thanksgiving. Um, so the way I say that is that there should be a default orientation in our lives. A disposition of thanksgiving in everything that we say and do. It should be our disposition. The attitude of our heart is thankful. Not just that we are polite, that we say thank you, but that we mean thank you. And you know there's a difference if, if you've ever gotten black socks from your grandmother for Christmas, right? You can say thank you all day, but you are probably not really thankful for those, right? Unless... You reach a certain age, and then you start thinking, man, I really need some black socks. Um, but, you know, in, in this, this is almost, this is probably a, a little bit of an overstatement. So just acknowledge that up front. But I was talking to my wife yesterday, and I said, I almost get the impression when I read some of these passages about being thankful that what holiness is to God, thankfulness should be to us. Here's what I mean by that. God is a lot of things. He is loving. He is kind. He is merciful. But a qualifying characteristic of all of those things is holiness. God's love is a holy love. God's kindness is a holy kindness. Okay, it, it's, it's a, it gives it a qualitative difference than what you might think. That's what holiness does. It's, it's like an underlying characteristic of everything else that he is. 
And I, I read these passages about thanksgiving that we should be thankful. And, and Paul, if you go through Colossians, I mean, if you look at verse one or chapter one, verse 11, he says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the father. In other words, do all of that, be that way and be thankful in it. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So as you are these things, the underlying characteristic of all of that should be that you are thankful. And so, like I say, maybe a little bit of an overstatement, but as holiness is to God, that his holiness gives a qualitative difference to everything that he is, Thankfulness should be to us. Everything that we do, everything that we are as Christians, there should be this river running underneath it of thanksgiving, this thread tying it all together that we are thankful people. And so the immediate question that comes to my mind is, is that reasonable? <laughs> you know, is, is, is that too high an ideal? Is that too much for God to demand? Um, can we do that? Is that even realistic that, that I would genuinely be thankful not just be polite but i would genuinely be thankful in every circumstance of life in everything that i say and do that the attitude of my heart my disposition would be thankful is that too much um i i guess the the answer is well it depends on what makes you that way how do you get there if it's impossible to ever reach there i mean that's God can still ask it of us, and, and he will give us grace where we fall short. But, but the question is, that seems really high. That seems really demanding. So what is it in my life that's going to help me be that way and aspire to that and not just say, I'll never be able to do that. I give up. Forget it. What is the key there? And before I answer that, big question, I, I want us to see what's at stake here. And so... If you would go back with me to Romans 1. Brad and I did not talk before this morning about any of this. And as soon as he said Romans 1.18, I thought, dang it, Brad, you're about to steal my thunder. You're going you're gonna to go right in. You're probably going to be more eloquent than I am and more thoughtful. And, um, but he didn't. So, <laughs> so thank you, Brad. <clears throat> So Romans 1. Now this passage, we often hear about it in relation to the conversation about homosexuality. That, that is just a hot button issue in our culture. And this is where typically we go to show the Bible does talk about it. This and several other, other places. And, and I don't want to, um, I guess, un- cover that up at all. I don't want to deny that at all. That is absolutely clear here. Romans 1 says something very clear and concrete about homosexuality and how how Christians should deal with it, or at least gives you a a doctrinal understanding of some of these deep-rooted sin issues in our heart. But it's not the point. The point of this passage is not this is how you should understand homosexuality. It's not the point. The point of this passage is God is pouring out his wrath because of something. He, he is revealing his wrath. He is storing it up and he will execute it on people because of something. 
And that something is because people are prideful and unrepentant because they don't acknowledge him. And so we often jump straight to the part about people worshiping the creature more than the creator. But I think there's something more basic here. There's something that gets right at what we were just talking about, the disposition of your heart. And so let's read it. Romans 1, 18 uh, through 23 or 25. We'll stop around in there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in that in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than, than the creator who is blessed forever. So God has created the world, created the universe, and structured it in such a way that we as humans should be able to look anywhere and get this message. Pay attention. There's someone behind all of this. The point is not you. The point is something way bigger than you. Way bigger than all these trees that you see. And these birds. And these rivers. And these oceans. And Mount Everest. And the Grand Canyon. There's something behind that. And something bigger. that, that These are all signposts pointing to. Don't miss that. And, and Paul says God's wrath is coming because men and women have looked at all of that evidence and they have said, no, thank you. I would rather look in the mirror and be amazed at me than see you. I would rather be amazed at me. I don't need you, God. And Paul says, that's why God's wrath is coming. Because he gave us all of this to show us, I'm here. Know me. Understand me. And we say, nope don't want it. I don't need it. It's, a, it's about me. Give me a mirror. We have a word for that. It's called pride. And C.S. Lewis very astutely referred to pride as the great sin. If you've read Mere Christianity, you got that. The great sin. And, and notice what Paul says about these kind of people, the people who think that way, who have that disposition. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks. Proud people don't say thank you. Why not? Because thank you implies that you have received something that you didn't have before. That someone out of their goodwill gave you something that you needed. It is always a response to some initiative or some provision from someone else. And proud people don't want to acknowledge that they needed someone else to provide something for them. In fact, it's the opposite. They just expect that you will provide that for them. You will give this to me because I deserve it. That's a prideful heart. 
And that kind of heart does not say thank you. That kind of heart says good. You better give that to me because that's what I deserve. And, and Paul says that's, that's the characteristic of a heart that is having wrath stored up for it. That God is revealing his wrath. He's pouring it out. And that is the default mode, whether you acknowledge it or not, of all of our hearts outside of Christ. That's our default mode to say, it's about me. Give me what I want. But Paul implies something here. There's, a, there's an implication in the way that he phrases that when he says that they did not honor God as God and they didn't give thanks. The implication is that maybe if they had any inclination to give thanks for what they had received, maybe something would be different in their lives. If they had any, any inclination that I am receiving of the good benevolence of God and I need to acknowledge that, to honor him, maybe something will be different. Um, thanklessness is rooted in pride that hardens men's hearts against God. But thanksgiving is an antidote to a hard heart. And why is that? It is because thanksgiving is rooted in the opposite of what those prideful people think. Thanksgiving is rooted in a, in a recognition that not only are we recipients of God's good benevolence, we are absolutely desperate for that. We are absolutely dependent upon God for every good thing. That's where Thanksgiving comes from. There should be a disposition about us that recognizes that we are beneficiaries and that there is a benefactor who gives us what we need, and that disposition should cause us to unceasingly well up in gratitude. And we have a word for those kind of people too. Those kind of people who recognize that they are dependent on the good pleasure of God to provide everything to, to them. And the word is humble. And humility is the root of all thanksgiving. If you get nothing else today, get that. Humility is the root of all thanksgiving. Um, I want to show you this from, from another place in Scripture that you may not, it may not jump out at you immediately, but it has hit me in the, in the teeth many times um, in a good way. And so let's go to Psalm chapter 50. It's one of my favorite psalms. <clears throat> I come back to it over and over again. Um, and it's in, when I start reading it, you may think, this is weird. Where is he going with this? Uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll see something here. Psalm chapter 50. Let's just start at the beginning. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him as a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Are you getting the picture of a meek, humble, weak God there? No, right? God comes with a devouring fire before him and a mighty tempest around him. That's supposed to make you stop and say, whoa, he's big. He's, he's intimidating here. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah. 
Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Paul's right there for just a minute. You may have read the next verse, but but Paul's right there, and let's, let's follow this logic. God, the omnipotent, this intimidating big God who comes with a devouring fire before him and a tempest around him, he speaks. And what does he say? He says, gather to me everyone that serves me with sacrifice. Gather to me my faithful ones because I will speak against them. That's scary. And what does he say against them? He doesn't say, you have failed to serve me in sacrifice. No, he doesn't say that. They have been dutiful in keeping the regular sacrifices. In fact, he says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. You, you have kept the, the letter of the law here, giving me sacrifice. But he says, I will not accept your sacrifice. I don't want them. And this is where God blows your mind. The problem with their sacrifices, he's, he's going to tell us. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house because every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I own the birds and everything that moves. So he says, the problem is not that you're not sacrificing to me. The problem is something with your sacrifice. He says, I don't want your sacrifice because I don't need them. Everything on the earth is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. He, he goes so far to make this point that he says, you know what? Get this, human being. If I were hungry, I'm not going to ask you because it's all mine. I don't need you to provide for me. Okay? If, if I'm hungry, I'm just going to get it. I'm going to eat. I don't need, I'm not dependent on you to bring me things to eat. So the problem with their sacrifices, and often our sacrifice, our serving the Lord, the problem is that they were sacrificing to God as though he needed their sacrifices. As if out of their sufficiency, look, I have lots of goats and bulls. Out of my sufficiency, I will provide to the Lord. He, he needs this, and I am the one who can deliver this sacrifice faithfully. And God says, I don't want that sacrifice. I, I will not accept that sacrifice. So what's the alternative? Notice God doesn't tell them, look, just stop the sacrifices already. Stop serving me. Stop doing things for me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I don't need your sacrifices, so don't offer them. No, he tells them to change their disposition to change their mentality and how they're offering these sacrifices. And we see that in the very next verse, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. 
God says, bring me your service. Bring me your sacrifice. Live, live a life that, that honors me and serves me. And do that recognizing that I give to you what you need, not the other way around. If you want to honor me, you, here's what you can do. You can ask me to help you. How about you honor me that way? When you are in trouble, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's where God's coming from. He says, you recognize that you are dependent on me, not the other way around. And call out to me and I will gladly deliver you and give you everything that you need. Because you need me. And that is the root of thanksgiving. You are ever in need of God's beneficence. You provide nothing and he provides everything. You are the recipient and he is the giver. And the natural response of a heart that understands that, that hopes in that, is to say, thank you, Father. Thank you that you, you didn't leave me hanging out to dry here. When I'm innately dependent on you for everything, you provide you deliver out of your good pleasure. You give me what I need. Thank you. Thankfulness is not a set of deeds that we do. It is not a service to God in, in physical ways. It is not a set of words that you say. Thankfulness is an attitude of the heart that is necessarily rooted in humility. Because the essence of being thankful is recognizing that you are indebted to God for everything. And the question is, okay, so what's the result then? If that's the essence of Thanksgiving, if that's where it comes from, where is it going? And let's wrap up by seeing this. Notice verse 16. I think there's a clue here. Um, verse 16 of Colossians 3, sorry. If you're reading verse 16 of Psalm 50, you're really confused. Uh, verse 16 of Colossians 3. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, a year ago, like tomorrow, one year ago, I preached a sermon here about how we sing, how we do music at Three Rivers. And I think I mentioned in that sermon, I really wanted to spend time talking about the connection of thankfulness to music. Now, I didn't have time to get to it, so I'll get there today. Just kidding. Um, but there, there's, this, there's a corresponding passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul says basically the same thing, that, that you should sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart, with thanksgiving to God. Um, and that's a clue to me. What, there's, there's something, thankfulness is this, it's contributing to some end that the way we sing, the way we live in the next verse, he says, everything you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus with thanksgiving. It's all going somewhere. So it's coming out of humility, recognizing that God gives me everything and it's going somewhere. And I think the answer that I found is in Psalm 6930. The psalmist says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Magnify is just a, another word for glorify. In other words, I will, I will show the worth 
and glory of God with thanksgiving. So it comes out of humility. I recognize I need everything that I have from you, God. You give me everything that I need. I rest in that. And then in that thankfulness, it comes along with all these other characteristics we should have as Christians and goes back somewhere, goes back to God in, in praise, in glory. It magnifies him. It shows that he is good. It shows that he is worthy of praise. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving magnifies God because it acknowledges that he is the provider. He is the giver. And as John Piper says, the giver gets the glory. So where do we go from from here? Where do we go with that? Well, the first thing we do in two minutes, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts. I hope you get that. I hope you recognize this morning that Every good gift you have, everything that you need in life, you are dependent upon God's goodwill to give it to you. Do not be Romans 1. Don't look at God and say, I don't need you. Look at him and say, I need you for everything. And recognize that he has given you everything that you need for life and for godliness in Jesus Christ. That, that is, that's the, I mean, that's the point of history, that you are desperate for God and God has given himself to you in Jesus. And what is your response to that? It should be, thank you, Father. Thank you for what you've given. So where does that work itself out? We sing with thanksgiving. We wake up Thursday morning and you throw a turkey in the oven. And when it comes out and it is delicious and has a crispy skin on it and perfectly seasoned with salt and pepper, what do you do? Do you gloat and you say, look at how good I am? (laughs) You might do that if your brother just cooked a turkey and you outshined him, right? You might be able to do that. But no, what do you do? You sit down at that table with your family and you say, we are dependent on God for this. Without him, we have nothing. Without him, we don't have oxygen, much less a beautiful turkey sitting on our table right now. And and if you only do that Thursday morning, you have missed the point. (laughs) Because next Monday morning and Monday, February the 7th or whatever the first Monday in February is, when there's nothing going on, there's no, you know, big calendar event to remind you of how important we should, it is to be thankful. On that Monday morning, you need to wake up and say, God, I'm dependent on you for everything. Thank you that you have not cast me away. Thank you that even in my brokenness, when I have moments where I say, I don't need you, you pursue me. You don't give up on me. You continue to provide for me. That's a humble heart that produces thanksgiving. And thanksgiving honors God. And he is worthy of that honor. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that we understand that if there is anyone here who is self-sufficient, I pray that you would soften them this morning. May they recognize that all their labors, all their arrogance, all their pride, all their effort cannot provide anything for them apart from you graciously giving it. I pray that that would be the attitude of our heart that we would recognize 
We are dependent, utterly dependent upon you for everything. And may that turn into thanksgiving for your continued provision. May we see Jesus, the perfect picture of your provision. And may our hearts respond accordingly in thanks. And as we sing together, I pray that the the defining characteristic of our corporate time together would be giving thanks to you for what you've done for us in Jesus. We need you, Father. We are desperate for you. And you have delivered. You have given us what we need. I pray that our, our response would be thank you with humility, with joy, with love, with hope. May we say thank you every day. It's in Christ's name. Amen.